Hello and welcome to the Late Kickoff Football Podcast. Phil Foden's hat-trick stung the bees and made it the most goals in a Premier League game week for 30 years, which saw Wilder whacked, Moyes mullered and Roy ravaged. And it's not just demolitions getting dished out, but also seismic managerial appointments as podcast favourite Nathan Jones heads into the valley with Charlton Athletic. First, we'll start at the Emirates, where the Gunners blew the Liverbirds out of the sky. And like, lets it run. Martinelli trying to get in behind him. Oh, Martinelli must score! A Liverpool error pounced on by Gabriel Martinelli. 2-1! I am host of the podcast, Jamie Guyan, and joining me this week, as ever, a very happy Mike Wood. Mike, how are you doing? Oh, yes, I'm late. Jamie, how about yourself? Absolutely buzzing. Sheila will be joining us as well, and we'll be jumping onto the podcast hopefully in a few minutes yeah that was Arsenal 3 Liverpool 1 starting with the game itself Mike uh, thoroughly entertaining match between two of the best and most entertaining teams in the league we're in a wonderful era where these big games seem to keep chucking up fantastic games of football and brilliant results long long moved on from perhaps um, four or five years ago where it was consistent nil nils which is Great great to watch. Brilliant when your team wins. Brilliant for a neutral. Uh, this one, like I say, was no different. Um, and Arsenal Arsenal came out on top in the end, probably deservedly so on the balance of play, Mike. Ah, well, I suppose we take the, the errors for each team out the way. Um, Arsenal would have still won the match. And I think it goes to show that Arteta's way of doing things works, even though it doesn't always come across consistently in terms of the results so far in terms of trophies and accolades, because Arsenal played very similar against Liverpool in the FA Cup tie, but didn't get the outcome because they never had the goal scores on the pitch and, and gave up so many opportunity chances. Whereas this time they took the chances, they capitalised on the mistakes. More importantly, they forced Liverpool into those mistakes as well and they got the rewards. And I think it's tremendous that for the way that Arsenal have been playing for quite a while now, to take the scalp of a really big team, which Liverpool, of course, are, and they put themselves up to Man City as well, it, it bodes well going forward uh, for the next couple of seasons, at least you would, or one would presume anyway. Yeah, and you might have been a little bit worried as an Arsenal fan before the game to see Jesus wasn't in the squad yet again with another um, injury that he's picked up in training, but um, Arsenal seemed to adapt pretty well. Interestingly, um, Nketiah didn't come in for this one um, as he has done on, on a number of previous occasions um, and the front the, well the attack for uh, Arsenal just seemed to flow pretty well Mike and Gabriel Martinelli maybe a player that hasn't um, got on the score sheet as often as he would have liked this season but Arteta stuck by him just because of his effectiveness in terms of stretching the play and, and on the ball and I guess against a team like Liverpool who aren't going to sit in maybe as much as some of Arsenal's other opponents that then plays massively into Martinelli's hands. I thought he was fantastic on Sunday. No, I think you're spot on there. And he seems to have a tremendous game against Liverpool. A lot of the times, I think he's scored most of his Premier League goals against one club has been Liverpool. So he's evidently got that bit in his teeth when it comes against Trent or whoever's marking him on that side of the pitch. And he does seem to have the better of him. Klopp's been effusive in his praises of him uh, over the years as well. And yeah, he has been a bit off the boil, but he can potentially bring so much to the to the field when he's on form. And it really was him that caused the error for the the second goal that he, he tapped in when he gives Van Dijk a nudge that pushes uh, Allison into kicking and missing the ball. And obviously, he's got the whole uh, box to score from as well. So I, th- I think he's he's effective in what he does, but at points he's just inconsistent. But when you've got somebody like Trossard as well that can come on and affect the play and obviously scores the third to put the game out of sight. It, it, Arsenal do have the makings of a good squad. It's probably one or two kind of light and it's stretched. I think there's been a few articles about it in recent weeks. But in ter- terms of the starting eleven, maybe the first 16 that you'd expect to see rotate in and out, I think it's a, it's a very strong squad and obviously it's got this identity that's synonymous with uh, Arteta because he's been there for so long now and he's built the club from kind of ruins of what came out from the Wenger era and kind of stabilised under the Emery kind of period. So I think it's, it's tremendous what Arsenal are doing at this moment time. Long may it continue. Joining us as well this morning, Sheila. Sheila, how you doing? I am good. Sorry, apologies for my tardiness again. 
No, 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 not a problem at all. Uh, we've done all the positive stuff, well, not all of it, perhaps, but we've done the a positive start on on Arsenal there with Mike. The other side of the coin, Sheila, is Liverpool. They do Liverpool do maintain their dubious record of not having been beaten when having eleven men on the pitch at the end of the game. Um, now only losing to Spurs and Arsenal both times with men sent off, but uh, their only goal in this game, Sheila, was a. Absolutely bizarre old goal from Gabriel Martinelli. I was having a conversation with Chap. I was watching the game with. I genuinely can't remember an own goal that's gone in off somebody's hand and is a is a full blown own goal. Like it's not a a deflection or something. But um, yeah, the the point I was going to make there, their their xG was only point uh, four six. Um, aside from that, and they just didn't look like they had any real gumption in attack. Any any real ideas? They seemed to even when they were chasing the game late on, was were passing the ball sort of in arches around a well-organised Arsenal defence and perhaps missing, um, obviously missing Mo Salah and, and Shobazlai in this game, uh, more so than they had done in, in previous weeks. Definitely, I think that's fair. But I think a lot of that's down to the way Arsenal set up, really didn't allow Liverpool to, to play their strengths and impose themselves on the game. I think out with that own goal that you mentioned, where again, I think that's poor Gabriel, he'll, he'll, the record books will show that he scored the own goal, but Saliba and Raya really didn't do him any favours, and both of them made an arse of it, um, to be honest, and let, let Diaz get a touch on it when he really shouldn't have. Um, but yeah, I thought otherwise Arsenal really had a good game defensively. Um, ben White was was pretty good. Zinchenko didn't do his sort of normal inverted fullback stuff and just stuck to a normal left-back row. And I think that just just clamped Liverpool. And again, I don't think, I, honestly, I don't think it would have made much of a difference if, if Salah or Shobasly or both of them would have, would have played. I just think this was just, just one of those days for Liverpool, um, which is a great credit to Arsenal because they really snuffed them out and didn't let them get their, get their foot on the ball in any sort of real attacking areas even when when Darwin was brought on it, it didn't really make much of a difference uh, Jota's had his had his quietest game or his least effective game since he's been back from injury didn't really get you know the the normal sort of in between the fullbacks positions that he likes to take uh, in between the fullbacks centre-backs sorry positions that he likes to take up um, yes yeah, so Liverpool really didn't offer much and then like uncharacteristic mistakes from from players that are normally sort of reliable, like Van Dijk and Allison, and even Kanate, I think his, his second booking was booking was absolutely needless, um, and just like he's going to be missing for the next couple of games. So it does unnecessary pressure on Liverpool, where you know they want Kanate, who's had such a good season up until now. So just just a bad day at the office all around for Liverpool. Yeah, Allison, Allison, just I think Allison is the most he's got this in his locker world-class goalkeeper we've had in the league maybe ever maybe Bartes is the only other one that I can immediately think of as a guy who's like 11 out of 10 almost every week but when he drops a clanger holy shit he drops a clanger um and but to be fair Van Dyke not helping him out much either um any controversy in that red card for you Mike I thought it was a stonewall second booking I did I did hear on a um another podcast questions around whether the booking was slightly harsh or whether um, after that caution that Gabriel maybe should have found himself sent off as well. But for me, I just thought it was as clear as day. The second it happened, um, everybody I was with said, oh, that'll be a second booking. And and, and so it was. And I don't think there's a huge amount you could complain about. No, not at all. Um, the first booking more itself was a DSA for getting involved with Havertz when you know like even if Havertz got away, what's he would do? Kick it to Rose Ed. So I think there's just ele- there's just elements of Kanai just getting suckered in really twice into two instances where he doesn't need to get involved. And I think we know he's like he's quite a physical defender. He likes to get uh, involved in the in the duels. But yeah, it just 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 needless from him, and it just kind of summed up Liverpool's day of being error strewn and not mentally up to the task at hand. In terms of the. Uh title fight itself, Sheila, I think it's fair to say we've got a a full-blown three-horse race at the moment, uh, but that result very much hands the impetus to Manchester City, particularly after they were able to um, secure all three points against Brentford last night. And 
we sort of discussed Mike and I last week that maybe this this running had the hallmarks of you know Liverpool and City winning every week and running away with it, but Liverpool blink first. City still have to play Arsenal and Liverpool. Does does that result change? Your thoughts at all on where the title's going to go? Are you still, I think you've been pretty pretty hot on City all season, as we all have, um, that they'll just go on one of these crazy runs and, and win it. And perhaps that result on Sunday just yeah, I mean, corroborates that even more. Yeah. The, the, the thing, as we say, there's just a, a sense of inevitability about them. Even even when they went behind last night with Brentford, it's like, oh, but they'll, they'll get chances. Even the way the game was going, Flecking was really keeping Brentford, keeping the scoreline. Uh, respectable up until that point anyway um and now they're like their injury list is well clean it's a clean slate more or less and you think of the wealth of riches they've got to choose like again we were all speculating yesterday or oh, who's going to drop out for kevin de bruyne and this and th- this week it was a uh, doku slash Grealish that 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 um fell out but it could just as easily change next week and it's just mental for the for the rest of the league and yeah, they just there's just uh we've we've been here before, been here before that you you know you do feel that Liverpool and Arsenal, despite having such good great teams, are capable of dropping points here and there, whereas City just you just don't get that sense with them. Despite them being sort of defensively vulnerable, they're just so good in attack that you need to score probably at least three to to stand a chance of beating them. Like one one or even maybe two is not enough. Whereas for Arsenal you, and Liverpool, you think, right, maybe if you if you go one, two goals ahead, you know, it's going to be really difficult for them to come back into it. But not with City. Yeah, absolutely. Although, Mike, t- t- obviously Arsenal will be delighted to have sort of dragged themselves back into the title race. It was only a few weeks ago we were asking the question whether they had sort of blown their chances. Worst case scenario, there'll be three points behind Manchester City um, and, of course, do still need to play them. And, and City do need to play Liverpool. So I suppose... In that sense, um, it, it gives Arsenal and Liverpool a little bit of an advantage, given that their their fate is more in their own hands than it is for City. No, absolutely. I think, as you said, City look inevitable, and just because of the strength and depth that they can call upon the squad, as you said, Bielish and Doku getting left out of the team this week because you've got to be able to slot in De Bruyne and Haaland. Arsenal don't have these riches. The players that they were bringing on was the likes of Reese Nelson, and even though I mentioned Trossard, he's, he's still not that kind of city calibre player that they even possess on the bench. So I do think there's aspects of both these teams just find it hard to uh, keep up with City. And while they've kept them honest a lot of the way over the past couple of seasons, City, well, like we always say, they, they, they potentially still have a gear or two to go before they really play at a peak. And if Foden's transforming into this key talisman for the squad rather than a periphery figure, um, again, it's just another string to the bow, and it, it, it's quite frightening that the way City are perhaps going to go about demolishing these teams, especially, like you said, if they've got Arsenal and Liverpool to play and get the desired outcomes in those fixtures. Absolutely. A- any more for any more on this one before I move on? Yeah. Let's go to the, I was just saying the Stadium of Light. That's not correct. <laughs> St. <laughs> James's Park. <laughs> Newcastle United for Luton Town for big fan of this um, fan TV commentary I've come across. It's uh, much much more excitable than even Peter Drury, if not quite as poetic. Two weeks in a row that we're um, talking about Luton, Mike, uh, another absolutely incredible game that they found themselves involved in and just seem to be demonstrating a level of bravery for a team in the relegation zone that perhaps you wouldn't usually be accustomed with, particularly at this stage of the season where points are so, points are always valuable at that end, but they're so incredibly valuable in what is becoming quite a tight relegation battle. And and Luton just seemed to be oozing confidence, even if in this game they couldn't quite get it over the line. No, absolutely. But the, the, the standard of chance that they got presented with as well was incredible by Newcastle. So the, the fact they've got to Stanford Bridge, eh, sorry, I'm bloody making. You're doing it as well. <laughs> they got to St. James's Park and right, they get a fairly fair, fair enough. But the other three chances were like really nice opportunities that were presented to them. And like, so they're doing the right things and they're working the balls into the right areas. And like they've got a bit of belief about them. As we said before, we don't know what's going to happen with the profit and sustainability rules. If teams are going to get clamped down with points deductions. If Luton just keep going about their business and chipping away points here and there, 
keeping their home form settled and I know they've played a lot of the big boys at Kenyon for Rough Road as well so you favour that the teams coming to town will be more uh, presentable in terms of trying to get points off them as well and I think Dublin have, a, have an outside chance of actually staying up this season which would perhaps be one of the most unlikely stories you would have had in the Premier League years considering how basically everybody even inside Lewin were just accepting the fact that look, this is a one-year crack to build, potentially build upon coming back and being strong for three, four, five years later. Um, and so the way they're doing about it with an identity that's very much, it's enlightening as well, you know what I mean? It's very up and atom in your face, so it kind of represents what Luton and Kenilworth Road wants to be as well. So I think there's a lot of aspects that are going into this, that Rob Edwards is presenting himself as a, as a great manager, when otherwise we thought maybe he's just done a really good job for a team and got lucky at the right time and, and, and sprung his chance in the championship to get them up. But he's he's proved himself the likes of Wilder and company at this moment in time that he's the he's the best manager of the three. Yeah, because he's learning, isn't he? That's the that's the seems to be the overwhelming difference um, with him that he's adapting, learning, uh, and building this team. And it is uh, they're always tremendous to watch. I think because you say the way that they're so up and at him and in your face and a little bit a little bit championship, but growing in terms of, of quality and they've got interesting players all over the park. Uh, one of them, Sheila, was on, particularly on Saturday anyway, was o- Og Benny, who gave poor Dan Byrne an absolute nightmare. He was uh, eventually put out of his misery in, in the second half, having very nearly given away a penalty. Um, I think it's probably as much of a mismatch uh, down a flank as you're ever going to see was Ogbeni for pace against Byron but um, his sort of drive and commitment, his pace, power in the game coming down that right hand side was epitomised everything Luton were about in this game and you could probably pick out examples all over the park of of players that are that are almost playing out with themselves in terms of quality at the moment. Yeah, definitely I mean like you said the pace, power and commitment, I think you probably just apply that to, to every player in, in Luton's team at the moment um, and I think I think obviously given the sort of the, the budgetary constraints that they're under, that's really all you've got in the locker. But I think for me, when I watch them, it seems like they've taken the best attributes of Burnley and Sheffield United, but not inherited the, the weaknesses as well. But they're not as they play good football when they want to, but they're not as naive as Burnley. Um and then like they do have a bit of grit about them, but they're not as tame as as a Sheffield United. So they do make, they do present a lot of problems for for the opposition, and I think just like you say, like try and create mismatches where where they are, and like you think Dan Byrne and Ogbeni, they, they, there's one, but like in games gone past, you've got like Adebayo, who's sort of went at set pieces, he sort of meander towards a, a fullback or a shorter player, so he can beat them in the air, and that's that's the kind of what Luton do. They do pick out these little sort of opportunities and make the most of them, whereas. Burnley are just trying to trying to play good football, but ultimately, you know, the, the golfing class is just too big. And then Sheffield United have all of my Burnley up front, so you, know, you get what you deserve there. <laughs> so, yeah, they, you're absolutely right. They're almost like a they're almost like a um, ultimate power ranger of all promoted teams. It's like it's like mm. the individually promoted teams are the power rangers, and they've all come together to turn themselves into some massive dinosaur that's actually able to take on the behemoth that is the Premier League. Um, and I, another player that I find interesting, Michael, I'll, I'll give you two. One, One's Alfie Doughty, who reminds me of like a sort of James Milner come like Mark Albrighton kind of consummate professional doesn't necessarily have an asset that you can put your hat on, but just seems to go about the game very professionally and 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 as a massive asset for Luton. And then perhaps almost the opposite of that, arguably the ultimate luxury player in Ross Barkley, who just seems to have re-found himself this season, particularly since Christmas, um, and is putting in stellar performance after stellar performance and and maybe the kind of on his day, genuine top half Premier League quality player in the middle of their park is able to sort of it seems to just elevate everything around him. I think I think on Barkley, he's able to flourish at a team who appreciates his attributes and minimizes his weaknesses in terms of you know what you're going to get from him, and it's very all action going up the park, but perhaps going the other way, he's a bit lacking. But when you're a team like Luton, there's no way you can afford to do it, but you understand that. 
if he's got those sole attributes that you can you have to make up from our areas and they do because we've said like they're hard working and they're very determined off the ball and what they do so they can afford to have that kind of one guy who kind of doesn't necessarily put as, as strong a shift in it as the others but undoubtedly he, he, I mean he just looks like another one of these emerging English fullbacks who are just in terms of the modern day just very good at carrying the ball and crossing the ball and he's so attack minded as well that Again, he's he's still good going back as well. He's not one of these guys that just totally diminished on the other end of the park. So he's a bit of a two-way player in that aspect as well. And I just think he'll, if Lund do go down, I think they'll struggle to keep a hold of him because there'll be a, a fair few teams, obviously because of the homegrown stuff that goes into the Premier League squad building as well. But just in terms of his talent and what he can do, I think he'd be like, I think he'd be perfect for like a Villa as well if they want to uh, do something with cash. So I think he's got he'll have his options in the summer if he continues to go the way that he does, and there's no reason why he should be, because he's very adapted in that system of what they're trying to do, and I think he's a, he's a tremendous player. Mike posed a question, Sheila, that uh, that's you know Newcastle scoring just as much as they're conceding. Uh, we conceded 37 in the league this season, and um, perhaps the Newcastle team is becoming reminiscent of, of Howe's Bournemouth Um so I, well, I think Mike was asking the question: Is Newcastle reminiscent of House Bournemouth? So I, I'll put that to you. It is reminiscent because I think at its core, this is still a, a Steve Bruce team with some very good players sprinkled throughout it. And we're kind of again, we said throughout last season they're they're ahead of schedule, and now that's kind of them back in line with where they should be. Um, that this team does possess some yeah, very good players like. You know, Isaac, who's perennially injured, unfortunately, Bruno, uh, Tonali when he comes back from his gambling ban, and uh, Trippier, these are luxury players. But the rest of the squad, the long staffs, the Dan Burns of the world, the Fabian Shars and players of that calibre, it's just like, right, these guys need to be shifted on. And that's the where Newcastle are coming across a sticky wicket here, is that it feels like the rest of the world can see that these are still sort of limited footballers and therefore are not queuing up to buy them. So that's kind of where, like, you have to question sort of the recruitment strategy here. It's to like, right, why did we buy these players and supplement them with the 80 million tamales or the 60 million EDACs when we could have bought a whole squad of these guys and, you know, we'd probably be much better off than we are now. We'd probably be more solid. We could have probably shifted the long staffs out rather than, you know, just being at this sort of crossroads where you can't go up nor down. So it's, it's a difficult one for, for how as to how he wants to move forward. Um, and it might, not, it might not even be the right guy to take them that next step. But uh, I think we're a fair bit off him losing his job right enough. But... You know, I think that the, the murmurings are out there that is this as as he plateaued as as Newcastle manager because he, he he can't really spend anything, and as we know that when Howe gets money to spend, he doesn't always use it wisely. Like one of the signings he paid for Bournemouth, Jordan Ive just came on for uh, what was it a fifth tier side yeah, at the weekend, Jordan Ive. Um, yeah, I think it was fifth, so, fifth or sixth year, and he had a look on his face as if to say, "What like, am I doing?" Well, how, how? Yeah, exactly. You're probably what is it? The voice of you're probably wondering how I got here. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it is kind of getting reminiscent of how it's born with that they've that they've plateaued, and that, and it's. I don't think they'll go as down as sharply as how's Bournemouth, but I think they'll, they'll don't see them moving up so much again last year like Liverpool had a disaster Chelsea had a disaster um, Spurs had a disaster Villa weren't had a disastrous start whereas all these teams are kind of reorganising rejuvenated and, and it's Newcastle now that are on the other, the other side of the coin where are, are struggling so it's yeah a, absolutely well, it's yeah, out, should... out with Chelsea of course but but you look at the tail, you know, they're only two points ahead of Chelsea, who will come to. They're only a point above Wolves. They're behind Brighton, who we were given a bit of a hard time to. Uh, last week, they're behind Man United. Five points by Man United, who we have given a hard time to, you know, all season. Uh, I th- almost feel in some ways Newcastle seem to have avoided as much criticism as perhaps they, they got on. Maybe not Newcastle per se, but Eddie Howe has avoided perhaps as much criticism as he as he could warrant but I suppose um, 
is assisted by the sheer that, volume of injuries that they've they've suffered as well. I think yeah, that is that always helps a manager and, and the excuses in terms of excuses all are missing X Y Z player. But again, I think you have to quit. Like, again, I've, I'm seeing a lot from like sort of the Newcastle side of things. Oh, FFP is sort of restricting us from moving forward, and I think like well, not really, is it because. The play, you, you've so you've spent an incredible amount of money and you've got very little in return and that's why it's coming to bite you back in the arse. You know, you should be focusing on players like Lewis Miley um, and that guy trying to integrate them into the team and then supplementing them with sort of, as, as we said, like players around where you, where you are in the league and they don't have very, like, I don't think it's beneficial for them to say, all right, well, we have to sell Isaac now to... To rejuvenate the team, like they probably should have taken that offer from from Bayern for Trippier. To be honest, um, although he is a very valuable player for Newcastle, it's like right, well, let's get that money in the bank and start start sorting things out back of house, and then eventually it'll translate to the front of house success. Because they're still, no matter which way you spend it, you can have the richest one in the world, but if you're spending more than you earn, then it's doesn't matter. It's irrelevant, which is the whole point of FFP. Um, so until until they sort that out. And, they won't move. They won't move forward. I'm afraid. Anything to add to that, Mike? Before we move on. No, fantastic. Here they come down the right side. Pedro Neto driving in field, pulling back. Cunha. Oh, well Mateus Cunha finishes off a brilliant driving run by Pedro Neto. Chelsea two, Wolves four. Through gritted teeth, listening to the. Uh, overly excitable Wolves TV commentary there and um, cruel karma with my favourite manager Gary O'Neill fully sticking the boot in on Chelsea um, at the weekend which was really nice of him it was it's been an absolutely we should start with so I was going to start with Chelsea we should start with Wolves it's been an interesting week um, for Wolves Mike and they are slowly but surely creeping themselves up to potentially be in, in, in with a shout for European places, um, certainly with the direction of travel of West Ham and Newcastle, as we've just discussed. And it's the second season in a row now that Gary O'Neill has taken over from a manager that has said, these players are shite, I can't possibly do anything with them, and just drags them, drags them up the table. And surely, eventually, my camp of Gary O'Neill lovers is going to start growing and he'll get the flowers that he deserves. No, like the fan... Very impressive win at Stamford Bridge, uh, buoyed by Cunha's hat trick, of course. And it, it's not that they confuse me, but they have, of course, they've got the, the attacking friend, the final third, but they don't have much in behind. And I think that's maybe where they're not sustainable in terms of maybe pushing towards Europe is that while the defence of San, Kilman, and, and Dawson look, look good, they haven't been keeping the clean sheets. And obviously, they've conceded two goals in this game as well. That, Maybe we'll propel him up the table a wee bit, a wee bit more. But you've got to take your hats off to Gary O'Neill, who took charge. Was it in the week of the start of the season as well? Yeah, it was, the, it was yeah. that close to the start of the season. And like you said, he's done two tremendous jobs in terms of keeping teams who are otherwise unfancied in the league. And now, of course, he's he's buoyed by the three promoted teams this club uh, this season. That'll that'll definitely keep uh, most of the league in the, in the division, of course, without too much of a worry. But Outside of that, he's made Wolves more entertaining, and I think that's the one thing we've said over the course of this podcast is Wolves are one of these teams that lie lie doing the kind of last few runs of the match that they program because they just they just weren't entertaining, they weren't interested to watch, and they weren't interesting uh, in any facet either. So I think what he's doing and getting people to buy into the situation with a lot of other never mind managers but a lot of other agents players at the club I think he's doing a tremendous success and, and he's gotten the best out of a lot of these players who were otherwise unfancied like your Mario Laminas and even your Sarabias to some extent didn't get much of a looking under uh, Lopetegui Yeah it's fun. it is fantastic and they're in it, they're, they are very much an interesting side and um, they'll obviously be safe this season and surely for once Gary O'Neill will get to keep his job through the the summer and they won't go in and, and try and improve upon him. Um, and and that said, but you know, Bournemouth are obviously um, just a quick line on them are, are obviously going in the right direction too. But uh, on to um, Chelsea, Sheila, because there's no denying it's probably more of the story here. Uh, they did win three on the bounce in the league. They've then um, 
unceremoniously blown that by losing two on the bounce, a 4-1 defeat to Liverpool and a 4-2 defeat to, to Wolves. And the pressure now is probably as high as it's ever been on, on Poch. And um, all the sort of small signs of positivity coming out of Chelsea over the Christ- Christmas and, and January period have, have very, very quickly been um, pulled from under them. And it's just everything we've it's everything we've said all season that's bad about Chelsea and they're still bad in all those areas in terms of lack of any sort of discernible style of play, conceding silly goals and a lack of quality up front. I don't really have much to add after you know that <laughs> succinct sort of summation of how how it's going for Chelsea and I don't know if 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 it's the right thing to do to to get rid of Poch. I mean again because then the quest follow up question is right well who do we replace him with Sorry. and then it's just a player then if it's another project manager then it's like right well you will even get to build your project from the start because they've already spent a fortune on the two other boys projects so you know you'll have to make the best of what you've got with them maybe Gary O'Neill can come in and prove them <laughs> which which um, I'd get by I'd I'm get sure you would and I, I don't even think that's a bad shout to be honest Um but yeah, just Chelsea, it just seems no cohesion really from week to week. And I think that has been like not been helped by like set injuries and stuff like that. Like guys like a cuckoo who who when you see him does look like a player but can never stay fit for more than a week at a time. Um things like that that, that don't help. Um but, but other than that, like who's the like who's what's Chelsea's best defense? I, I really don't know. Um who's their best midfield pair? I really don't know. Who other than Palmer and Cuckoo, who's who's sort of the next two boys you want to play, and then sort of the four, the front four, because it feels like Potts is trying a combination of all of them, and then none of them are effective to week because they like, like because you've got so many choices. It's like right, we'll start Sterling and Jackson, and then they do well one week, the next week you like it doesn't work, so you're like fuck it, we'll change it again. And it's like no, there's no there's no consistency to this lineup out with. Palmer and again, if, if Poch could probably pick from a fully available eleven, then probably would be in Cuckoo. But after that, it's just like, right, who's who's playing where now? You don't know, and that can be that can be easy for a for a manager. But I, I think that's what Poch needs to do is kind of decide what he wants to, what who he wants to start, and keep it that way. So even if results don't go the way they want, you know, at least you've got a basis for consistency, which Chelsea just do not have at the moment. They do not possess that at all in any facet. I couldn't, literally couldn't agree more across the park. Yeah, uh, Mike and I went in pretty heavy on Conor Gallagher last week and I think it's exactly the same problem this week and sort of epitomises why they're going to struggle to move themselves up the table. I think at the back, um, Chilwell had a bit of a shocker in this game, but Thiago Silva hasn't looked anything like himself this season, which is no massive surprise. You know, the blokes are on side of 40s, so um, it, it's near a wonder that his ability is going to wane at some point. Um, and then he's, he, you know, he's had a selection of centre back pairings all season, whether it's um, Dezazi or um, Badia Shiel, and and probably the one that. The manager wants it to be for Fana is is injured. Reese James is forever injured, so there's no consistency at the back there either. And the sort of two billion pound central midfield pairing of Caicedo and Enzo Fernandez doesn't seem to be able to get off the ground. But then, how is it meant to when, like I just said, what's in front of them is Conor Gallagher and a misfiring Sterling, and quite often a misfiring Jackson, and they're standing in front of a calamitous back four it's it's difficult to build any kind of consistency for any players in the team um i wasn't overly big on poch years ago i wasn't big on poch when he got the chelsea job and a bit like for fuck's sake it was it felt inevitable and he doesn't seem to have done anything in the last seven eight months other than keep talking about how nice it would be to win a cup and there's absolutely no signs of them beating liverpool at, at the moment but mike sheila makes the most obvious point, which is who on earth would you get in instead? What's the point in destroying the project? And and so I think Chelsea need to be patient and need to hope that almost maybe even slightly blindly hope that at some point in the next 18 months, Poch manages to sort of stitch this whole thing together uh, and maybe do a bit of an Arteta clop to an extent and, and start pushing the team in the right direction. 
yeah, it needs somebody to put the ball in the back of it. Um, I think in terms of underperformance and their underlying numbers, it's only Everton who've scored f- uh, fewer than their XG so far this season. And that's obviously way laid in the fact that Chelsea are underperforming their expected points by seven, which is below Brentford. There's the only other team who's underperformed by that wider margin. So it shows you that Chelsea do have the, the ability to get the ball into good areas. But like I said, it's not, it doesn't have that cohesion and it doesn't have the kind of answer up top. And it might be in Kunku, but even then he's not necessarily an out-and-out out number nine. So who can you pair him with? And if it's Jackson, who does get into the right areas, but has got a touch of the Nunes and Jesus is a bit on where he, he'll he have an awful lot of shots, but not many of them will go on target and even fewer will go in. Um, I think that's just really what's kind of troubled Chelsea for not just Pochettino's era, Potter's extending back into Lampard's as well. It's like, like we said, it's, it's Diego Costa. They've not had a prolific number nine. They've not had a focal point for that many number of years. And like they've won Champions Leagues off the back of it and they've won a numerous array of cups but I think in terms of long term success they need to find their answer at number 9 and maybe then it'll all come together but they've spent a huge amount of money and how you're trying to offset that and to buy in like a 50, 60, 70 million pound player is going to be difficult for Chelsea who are against are up against the ball because they've spent so much and overpaid for quite a numerous amount of players as well so I think that's really where the issue comes down to is that they've got the makings of a good team but just try to put it all together. That's really where the issues are coming from. Couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, any more for any more on the Premier League before we move on to the the real big story of of the week? Right, let's, let's get to the main event. <laughs> any any excuse to to play this clip again? That's a lot of bollocks. You've got to fucking die to get three points. And uh, the other one that's being touted about all the time is. Uh, <laughs> We'll enjoy talking about him, but we'll do it by being fucking disciplined. <laughs> uh, Neil Warnock confirmed as Aberdeen interim manager until the end of the season. Fuck me, the odds you'd have got on that in uh, in July or August um, if, if you wanted to put it on for the manager that would finish the season in the dugout for Aberdeen. He's already been his charismatic, high personality self um, in, his, in his first couple of interviews as Aberdeen manager. Um, it's it's an absolutely bonkers one, and not that you ever really want your team to be a laughing stock, but uh, if nothing else, it's going to be it will be a bit of banter between um, between now and the end of the season. Um, Mike, we sort of very jokingly half touched on it last week with a bit of the but it all never happens in our in the tone of our voice, and it and it has happened. Um, so now that you've had a day or so to to sort of think about it and process it what do you, you make of Warnock to Scotland and Warnock at Aberdeen I, th- I think it's tremendous and what Aberdeen need in the short term is just a guy who can get a bit of a lifter in the club and a bit of a lifter in the players because they're evidently good players but in the last few managers they've been underperforming and I think that he's coming in saying like oh I wanted to take the, the Rangers game but I could have came in next week shows you that he's got a kind of great determination that he knows is a big game he's Banning out all the platitudes, saying like uh, this is a this is a club where you kiss the badge and it means something. So he's playing himself up as a right good character already in terms of the fans and saying like he gets the club. And I do think they they just need that bit of a lift and like this is obviously this is a very experienced manager and um, that they've got opposed to the kind of uh, the rookies that they've had in recent seasons. But like I don't I, while it's funny and he's got a lot of. Uh, Clips that you can play it, of course. He's it's still a very well respected manager in terms of the championship level, and he's been doing firefighting jobs for the last few seasons now, and it's, it's worked. And while Kerry Miller might be better because he took his role at Huddersfield Town, <laughs> I think it, I think it's exactly what Aberdeen need at this moment in time. It's it's not long term. He knows it's long term. The players don't know it's not long term. But he'll go in there and he'll g them up and give them a lift. And like if he gets a result against Rangers, and he goes on to win the Scottish Cup. It's absolutely tremendous for a guy who's never won a cup, but still held in such high regard because of what he's done throughout how his like forty-four year managerial history. Even though it's across seventeen clubs, we all remember his Sheffield United team when we were growing up. A Sheffield United team when we were growing up, well, it hasn't worked in a few places. Not every manager's going to be a success everywhere. So I think it's. I think it's. Well, it can kind of be mocked and kind of laughed at. I do think there is. A kind of connection and a reason why he's, he's here at this time. And I think he lost, he lost, he lost the job to Steve Patterson uh, many moons ago as well. Um, 
didn't even get a reply, he said. So I think it's, it's come full circle for Warnock, who's always had his eye on Scottish football as well. It's not like he's come in as a complete unknown. Um, he does take yeah, it. Despite what Kenny Miller says. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, a guy that's spoken about Scottish football quite a lot. And uh, was it, he's got a... Is it, he's got a brick at Greenock Morton Stadium with the family yeah, name on yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. The guy's gold from from top to bottom. Um, and Sheila, the, you know, we play these clips and, and they're quite funny and humorous and stuff. But a really good point, and I'll, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to steal it from the ABZ football podcast. Shout out to our friends over there was that, you know, these clips are now 20, 20 plus years old. And that's a guy that's been managing throughout that time so as much as these things are quite funny and you think that he's going to come in and give everybody a bollocking there's no denying that he will have developed as a manager and as a man manager and will know how to deal with modern day players and and get a tune out of them which as he sort of joked himself is no longer you know calling the in saying to the injured player just looking at you is going to make me feel sick go and have a bath (laughs) i mean look i mean beyond pretty much what Mike says, beyond the sort of the working class charisma, the, you know, the pie and Bovril kind of guy that he certainly appears to be, like there is a very shrewd head on those shoulders. And I think that you'd be hard pushed to, if you go through any of his clubs, you'd be hard pushed to find one that was in a worse position than after he had left. And um, I think that's that's part of what makes, makes him who he is, is he always seems to improve a team, maybe somewhat marginally, the, the, the margins change, but the, sort of the overall effect doesn't and um, yeah I think it, I, I, agree, I agree with Mike I think it's a, a brilliant appointment for for sort of four months work out of him I think it's exactly what Aberdeen need and again you know you're you're going to get away from the the rookies that have come in and try and talk say the right things but ultimately don't produce results and, and hopefully it'll be similar for Aberdeen and to what Robson brought in his first few months in the job where it's like, right, let's get back to basics. And and that's really what Aberdeen need at the moment is to a bit of confidence, a bit of consistency. And then, you know, the European football is probably off the table, but at least try and get back into the top six. I think that would be a wonderful, you know, job for, for Warnock to do if that's where, if that's where they end up. Um and yeah, just just stabilize the club because you know you might you must yourself you must have been feeling really good about the start of the season and the way it's panned out is probably your your worst nightmare. Yeah, considering where you were like sort of twelve months ago, well not twelve maybe eight months ago, but <laughs> definitely not twelve. We were exactly definitely not twelve, no twelve months ago, but like eight eight months yeah. ago. Yeah, um, you know, I think I think you're absolutely right. The, the only thing I'd say about Europe actually is that. We're currently eight points behind Kilmarnock, who are in fourth, uh, with two games in hand. And granted, up until now, there would be absolutely no sign of us getting any points from those two games in hand. But obviously, if Warnock is able to turn the tide slightly, Kilmarnock aren't out of reach. Hearts are, but you know, Hearts are, yeah. are eighteen clear or whatever. Hearts are out of reach, but I wouldn't say Kilmarnock are. And oh, def- definitely uh, not. But and the opportunity <laughs> no. to win a cup is is. Is obviously huge, and actually, I didn't, I didn't fully appreciate, but it's the, it's the winner of the cup that get the automatic group stage place. It's not third in the league. It just <laughs> inevitably ends up being third in the league because the old firm always win the cup. Um, so that that in itself is is interesting. That be a hell of a a hell of an achievement for them. But one thing for me as a as a sort of fan watching his interviews and stuff, I get the impression that he tends not to. I don't get the impression he lies very often. So I kind of, kind of sort of take him at, at face value because he spoke about himself quite a lot in the interviews and stuff. And that's fine. He's obviously an interesting character. But, I, you know, I did like, as Mike said, that he said he was going to come in next week, but he had the chance to be in the dugout for the Rangers game. You know, that is positive, you know, that, that, that he wants to be there. He, he's not thought, no, I'll let them get pumped by Rangers and then I'll take over afterwards. He's, you know, take he a, made a little... take a sit in the stand and have a wee look. Yeah, exactly. You see a lot a of joke about from, as well. From like, if it goes badly, he'll be he'll blame Peter Levine, and if it if it goes well, it's because he took a training session. And you know the way he says, like, I've never won a cup before, and I'd love to win a cup. Like, even if some of his motivation is entirely selfish, like, you know, it's mutually beneficial for for Aberdeen and for him if he if he's able to galvanise the squad towards that. And um, we're certainly on the pitch, not in anywhere near as much of a firefighting position as perhaps some of his 
his other jobs in recent years, Huddersfield obviously springs to mind where he had to drag them out of a, a of a mire in the relegation zone. Aberdeen aren't really as in desperation station as that. And maybe that'll allow him to work with the few genuinely quality players we've got. And if anybody can get a tune out of Adel Tarat, then there's hope for <laughs> there's hope for Duke uh for the rest of this season that maybe that's the kind of guy he needs to I'd love to be a fly on the wall where Pie and Bovril Neil Warnock is chatting to is trying to chat to Duke and tell him how good a player he'd be because I reckon it would be absolutely fascinating to see that that man management. Oh, you feel like, in, in all seriousness, you feel really that's what he's here here to do is mm-hmm. to try and get the best out of players like that who have who have kind of lost their way and that managers you've had you've sort of your past three managers haven't been able to talk to these players on a human level and try and, and get the best out of them. Like feels like they were constantly being thrown under the bus by at least Robson and then previously Goodwin. I don't, you, you don't see, I don't see Warnock doing that at all. Like, I think he's, because he's been around for so long, like he's, he knows enough to know that like you don't throw your own team under the bus. And again, because he's like, because he's obviously much closer to the end of his career than the start, like, it feels like he's, you know, he's, He's not looking at it. He's not got his eye on the next job or anything like that. He really feels that Aberdeen are like a, a very high caliber club. So he's not got. I'm going to use this as a stepping stone to to bigger yeah. and better things. Like this is the bigger and better things, which is you know for Aberdeen, even their players. You don't often say that about them. They're always got their eye on the next move. No, I think that's I think that's really a stupid point as well. I think he's going to come in and this is going to be his entire focus for four months and. Um, I don't think Aberdeen would would make the same mistake that Huddersfield made, which was once he does a if he does a good firefighting job, giving him it permanently. No, for Aber- next Aber- season, Aberdeen do don't have all. a Aberdeen do not have a track record of giving their interim manager uh, their, <laughs> the permanent job based on you know four good months. <laughs> that, they, that would be totally out of character for them to do that. <laughs> Very good, but but I'd, I'd like to think that we wouldn't be quite that fucking stupid. Like that that would that would be the point that I'd get a little bit concerned. But yeah, for four months, I think. I think, I think it would take him about 18 months. Like a season and a half would be thanks very much, Neil. That would be, and mm. then you could possibly again in the if same. There, what, they probably, what they probably should have done with Robson is right. You've done your four months, but you're still technically a rookie. Let's get someone closer in Neil Warnock's experience in for a Learn couple of years, them. and in the meantime, you know, we'll have a look for our our, our project manager, if you like, for the next five years. So whoever does come in inherits a stable foundation to build on rather than the inconsistencies that we've seen for the past few years. Yeah, no, I, the, I, I think you make a fair point. I, I, I Hopefully it's four or five months. We're meant to be doing this root and branch review at the moment. A few Aberdeen fans have suggested we've got in a, you know, one of these um, corporate consultancies to assist with the review and Don's fans are saying, you know, that's really embarrassing. I don't understand that at all. You know, if these corporate consultancies are good enough to go into Google and Apple and Amazon and and do reviews for them and streamline the businesses, then I think Aberdeen can need to be slightly less arrogant uh, to suggest uh, that it's not yeah, good enough. It's, that football has has evolved a lot over the last sort of 10, 15 years with regards to looking at how other businesses go about their business and how does exactly. that translate to football? And that's why we see, you know, data analysis employed well, hundreds of them across the big clubs in the world. So yeah, Aberdeen, it's like, oh, we just need we just need more pie and bovril men. We just need some more good Aberdeen men and everything will follow suit. Well, it's right. Well, it hasn't followed suit since the Fergie days. So, you yeah, know, exactly. you do need to have a look at what you're doing, especially if you want to, evolve as a football club so uh, yeah yeah yeah, I th- yeah absolutely so i think it gives us it buys us time to do this review hopefully buys us time to do some due diligence on a permanent long-term manager some maybe somebody in between robson and neil warnock is what we're looking for like somewhere in between no games as a permanent manager and four thousand games as a permanent <laughs> manager would be, would be fine um you know a guy that is a guy that has been a manager since 1980 that is absolutely mental by the time by the time we were even born he was on to his sixth job so <laughs> um which is which is absolutely incredible uh so yeah it, it buys the club time to do that i'm not against it at all i'd much rather do this than leave peter levine in charge there's no disrespect to him but you know he's a first team coach and again has no uh managerial experience and 
there is still stuff on the line for us this season. It, you know, it's not a complete dead rubber for between now and, and the summer, in which case you might just leave an interim from within the club in charge. The opportunity to win the Scottish Cup is still there, however remote. Um, and the opportunity to finish in the top four, likewise, is still there, however remote. So um, certainly stuff to play for. And tonight's game will be absolutely fascinating. As much as it, just to see Neil Warnock giving referees a bit as well. The, my only worry with that is that uh, equally, I imagine that a few Scottish referees wouldn't mind. Oh, yeah, I sent off Neil Warnock being added to their bow, which, as a fellow referee, is probably not something I should surmise, but it feels like that's <laughs> inevitable uh, in Scotland that one of them will fucking love the idea of getting to send off Neil Warnock. So um, hopefully, he just goes for the old charmer, old granddad arm round the shoulder of the fourth official approach and um, garners us a little bit of favour in that sense. Um, but one final point I wanted to make, actually, and I nearly forgot to make it, was um, obviously a lot's been made that Sky Sports and BBC News and The Guardian and etc. are all now focused on Aberdeen and like, you know, it's bringing a lot of eyes to the club. And um, that's probably good from a commercial perspective. But actually, I think what it does is it gives the board and the backroom staff a little bit of space because people will be so distracted by what funny stuff is Neil Warnock saying in a press conference this week that it might actually allow them to get on with this internal review largely un unwatched. Whereas I think if Levine was in charge, it would be every single week, it would be, oh, how's the review going on? Are they interviewing? What managers are they approaching? Who are they picking out? Who's flying into Aberdeen? Whereas I genuinely think that the media will be so distracted by Warnock that that will actually allow the club to get on about the business quietly um, in the background. And fucking touch wood, fingers crossed, Dave Cormack finally gets a managerial appointment right come come summer, but no doubt about it. Between now and then, it's going to be it's going to be some laugh, and I, I suspect we'll be talking about Aberdeen and playing some sound clips fairly regularly over the next <laughs> uh, three or four months. Um, he'll be up. He'll, he'll be competing with uh, I've forgotten both their names: Yogi Hughes and uh, Dick Grant. All right, Dick Campbell. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, for 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 same funny stuff that we want to repeat. Hopefully, funny stuff with a little bit more uh, sense than either of them to regularly come come out with. Uh, particularly Yogi Hughes. Um, I think that's everything, boys. Unless there was anything else you particularly wanted to talk about. No, no, I think we're good. I think we're good. No Formula One drivers have signed for Ferrari this week, so we can stick to no. the football. <laughs> um, fantastic no that's been absolutely brilliant um, a lovely little hour uh, chatting through the stories of the last weeks we'll be back again um, as always next week around about the same time to to do the same again and hopefully to discuss uh, being a week on from Aberdeen's masterful 7-0 win at Ibrox under new manager Neil Warnock for a story that would be uh, thank you very much and speak to you next week <laughs>